We spent the last two weeks really trying to get our hands around Satan, understanding about him, actually finding the verses that talk about him, understanding his limitations, understanding what his purpose is, his strategy. Okay? We looked last week and understood that Satan's already been defeated, that Satan power is limited, while God is unlimited. And that we kind of threw out this phrase that we're battling from a victory already won, not for a victory that's yet to be decided. The victory is already ours. Sounds good. Kind of flowery church stuff. What made last week so intensive was we started asking deeper questions like, if Satan's already been defeated, then why is he still running around? What's Satan's strategy? Take down as many people as possible. Why is God letting him continue to take people down? Why is he still fighting? What does he do within the church? How does he implement a strategy against us in the church? Go to the next slide if you could, Anthony. He attacks the church. He attacks both believers and unbelievers on the doorsteps of the church. We looked last week, and it was, it's important to understand this, that Satan is the spreader of false doctrines. He's the one who's behind unintentional errors in our theology, even behind just outright false religions. And we looked at the biblical support to back that up, where we're warned that that's Satan's work. That's one of his favorite tricks. You think you're in the right place, and you're not. We left off with questions that we really debated last week, and we even went a little bit deeper to understand questions like, well, if God knew that Satan was going to fall, why create him in the first place? If he knew that mankind was going to fall, why did he create us? But why would he let Satan tempt us? And we went deeper and deeper and deeper into these questions. Some of which I think we had good answers for. Some of which I think we'd still continue to ponder. Last week we also took the chance to read from what I consider one of the best arguments put forth by an atheist about why Satan doesn't exist. And we went through that and read it. And I thought it was pretty interesting. Some of you, I emailed it this week. I don't know if you got a chance to read it again, but man, that guy's a good writer, and he's got great questions, and it was almost like I think last week I said, all right, it's time for the midterm. If you can answer these questions, then you're tracking with me. There's so many times we think that Satan is God's equal, that there has to be good and bad, and starting to grapple with the idea that God is, there is no equal to God, not even Satan, not even close, and that God allows Satan to continue for his glory. That was the weight of last week that really made us go deeper, I think, than just a surface conversation about spiritual warfare. Tonight, I'm going to warn you, it's going to sound like we're going to be on the surface a little bit. I'm going to encourage you to go much deeper, so stay with me a little bit. It's going to be hard because the words that are going to come out of my mouth tonight are going to sound like Paul's words. They're going to sound all like biblical and flowery, and I'm going to try really hard to make them have impact, but that's going to be our challenge. All right, let's look at the screen. What are the questions that we're looking at tonight? If the victory belongs to Jesus, why is there still a battle going on? Why is it still going on? I mean, what kind of victory is it if there's still a war? If it's true that angels and demons are fighting and we have to take every thought captive and we're called to be part of the battle, how can you say that the victory has been won? Last week, somebody raised the point that if you were to take score based on pure number of souls, those people who believe in Jesus and those people who don't. Whether you do it historically or you just look at our world today where there's more people alive today than have ever lived in the earth combined. 
If you were just going to take score today, wouldn't it look like Satan was winning? If the battle is over the number of people who get saved, which I'm not saying that's what the battle is, but if you looked at it from that perspective, how do we claim victory when he's taken down more people than are going to make it into heaven? Second question, why does God even allow him to continue taking people down? Why does God delay Satan's punishment? You want to venture a guess? If you're not for God, then you have to be for Satan. So it's not like, oh, you're a devil worshiper. It's just you're against God, and that makes you with Satan. Okay. I think that makes sense, except let me add this to it. You're right that the vast majority of people who are not with God are not devil worshipers. I agree with that. Okay. But if the two slides ago that I was talking about, if Satan is the one behind false doctrines, false religions, and let's take it out of the religious context, he's behind materialism, any distraction that takes you away from Jesus, if those are his weapons, he doesn't have to get you to worship him, right? Because you said by definition, if you're not with God, you're with him. So all he has to do is make sure you're not with God. In that way, you could almost say, if you were just going to count the number of souls, that his tally is higher. Go to the next slide. Let's take the first one. If victory belongs to Jesus, why is there a battle still raging? Well, it's true that we can say that the victory has been won. I think that's a fair statement. Okay? But what's also fair is to say that the punishment is delayed. The enforcement of the victory has not happened. And in the interim, Satan's going to do all he can to take us down. Now that kind of begs the question. You're like, well, of course he's going to do all he can to take us down. We're trying to ask the question, why even delay it? Okay, Why is there still a battle going on? So here's the analogy that I was reading in the book that we're kind of tracking. Interesting analogy. During World War II, after the Japanese surrendered, there were many, many, many instances on the different islands where the war was going on in the Pacific where the people on the islands kept fighting. They didn't know that Japan had surrendered. And even when they found out that their emperor had surrendered, they didn't care. They had nothing else to live for. You know, there's some really interesting stories actually about World War II where the people who were fighting for the Japanese were so dedicated to their fighting that they would put them in these little burrowed out trenches Except like, unlike our trenches where you could jump out and run away, they would cement them in all around. So they couldn't get out. There was no way for them to get out. And they would just sit there on the beach, waiting for ships to come in or boats to come in with a little peephole like this big, and they would just sit there and shoot because they had nothing to lose. They couldn't get out. They had just enough food to make it. And they had to actually, you know, basically burn them out to get those people to stop shooting. It happened all through the islands. They would try to tell people, you know, the war is over. We won, you've been defeated, and they thought, well, what do we got to lose? If that's really true, let's just keep fighting. Take down a few more. It sounds like Satan's strategy. The victory has already been won. He's still fighting because as long as there's a chance to take down one more person, he and his angels are going to do it. They're going to try to take down one more person. I mean, maybe your war is over, but mine's, you know, my personal war is still going on. I'm going to take down some people because we lost and I'm mad about it. We know that Satan fell because of pride. Some people in here have surmised that maybe his pride is so big that even though he's been defeated, 
he still thinks there's a way for him to pull it out in the end. So at the very most conservative, we could say, we clearly know he's trying to take down as many people as he can to hurt God and just go, fine, you know what? But I'm not going to go easy. You know, I'm done, but I'm gonna, not going to go easy. So that kind of brings us to the next question. Like, well, if that's the case and he's going to take down as many people as he can, why is God letting him do it? Go to the next slide and let's look at that one for a second. Why does God allow Satan to continue in his attacks? Why does God delay the punishment due Satan? 2 Peter 3.9 says this, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Don't think I'm slow in keeping my promise the way you think of slow. Because... He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. In context of what we're studying, he's saying, the reason I'm delaying it is because what are you asking me to do? You're asking me to end the world today? Now? You asking me to end it a thousand years ago? You guys wouldn't have been here. You wouldn't have had a chance to know me. Think of what you're asking for. You're asking for me to usher in the judgment when we say, come, Lord, now and deal with Satan. He's like, yeah, have you read the Bible? I do that after I judge you people. You want me to do that? I can come more quickly, but all of you wouldn't be here. You wouldn't have a chance to know me. And every day there's people who are getting to know him that wouldn't get a chance to know him. So think, people, is what God may be saying to us, of what you're asking me to do. Yes, it's true. Satan is running amok. Yes, it's true. He's taking people down or helping to take people down. Maybe some of us do it ourselves. Okay, But if you wanted me to take care of them before even the garden, none of you would be here, none at all. And every day that goes by, just think there's maybe one more person who's born into the kingdom that wouldn't get in there if I had come now or yesterday or 10 years ago or 1,000 years ago or even immediately after Jesus sealed the victory on the cross. Like Jesus dies, boom, it's over. Think of all the people that wouldn't even have a chance to get into heaven. Let me look at 2 Peter 3.9 with you in a context. Go to the next slide if you could, Anthony. I'm going to actually read this because it's so important that we understand what this plan that God has got is about. If you read it in context, here's what Peter is saying. First of all, you must understand that in the last day, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Peter's making direct reference to the fact that people are always going to say, Jesus ain't coming back. Where's the second coming? Thousands of years have gone by, and it seems like every day is just like the day before it. No one's coming back. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed by that same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. He makes reference to the people who were deluged by the water, Noah's ark. They laughed at Noah the whole time he was building the ark. Jesus' own words said, consider the days of Noah. Consider, that's what it's going to be like at the end. People are going to be laughing, saying, the end isn't coming. This judgment isn't going to happen. And Peter is reminding us of Jesus' words and also of the time of Noah saying, that's what every generation always says. It's never going to come to this, and it does. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. 
He's not bound by time like we are. He's outside of time. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. In context, Peter is telling us, now that you can understand the full context of the verse, you guys think the end won't come? It's coming. Some people don't think there's an end. It's coming. Some people want it to come faster. It's coming, but on the Lord's timing, because he wants none to perish. But flip that around. It actually means because he wants some people to make it into heaven. Okay, if there's a war and we're called to be in it, tonight we're going to begin to understand how to participate. All right? The end is coming for Satan, but he's still loose. So if we understand that God's going to let him roam around, that he's going to let him take people down, then we need to start to understand how to defend ourselves. Tonight, we're going to look at our defensive strategy. How do we defend ourselves? And next week, we'll look a little bit more at offensive strategy. Tonight, the defensive strategy. And this is the part where I need you to pay attention because these words are going to sound so much like the words you hear in church that you just kind of tune out when you hear them. Okay? Here's Ephesians 3. I'm sorry, Ephesians 6, 13, and 15. Put on the full armor of God. As soon as I hear the full armor, I know it sounds like I'm memorizing verse from elementary school. Oh, here we go. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Okay? The Christian buzzwords are like belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness, right? I mean, you know the churches I'm talking about where they walk in and they go, how you doing today? Got your belt of truth on? Huh? You know? And as soon as we hear that, we're like, oh, get me out of this verse, okay? But there are some really important things in this verse that I've tried to pick out. Let me break the verse down for you. Go to the next slide. Here's the things the verse is definitely saying. One, there's a command to put on the full armor of God. Not a request, not advice, It's written in the imperative. It's a command. Put on the full armor of God and do it now. The second thing you'll notice in the verse, it talks about because when the day of evil comes, it will come. All right? Paul is not talking about the end days. He's talking about those times in your life when evil comes to you. Those times in your life when you are spiritually attacked by Satan and his angels. And he's telling you that it happens and it will happen to you. So get ready is the imperative. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand when the day of evil comes. It will come. Stand your ground is the defensive posture. He wants you to stand so that you're not buckled by the attack that's coming. And here's how you do that. You put on three things, Paul tells us, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, and have feet fitted with the gospel of peace. All right, I know, Christian buzzwords, so let me give them some meat as to what those really mean and why he's telling us to put those on. And it wasn't so we can confuse all the newcomers or the new believers with, so how's the breastplate of righteousness protecting you this week, brother? Okay, next slide. The belt of truth, it's a metaphor. Paul is clearly making a metaphor to the way that the Roman soldiers dressed for battle. 
the belt was the most important part that they put on. It connected all the pieces together. Without the belt, your armor would not actually stay on your body. He calls it the belt of truth because what he's really alluding to us is Satan's number one weapon is deception. You need to know what the truth is so that you can withstand his deception. Truth. God's truth. Because Christians, like non-Christians, can be easily deceived. And he's trying to avoid the deception. If you're deceived, you're fighting the wrong war. You're not even on the front line where you're supposed to be. You don't know what you're fighting for. You may be even fighting for the wrong person because you're deceived. And he's saying, put on the belt of truth. You need to know the truth. Can Christians be deceived? <laughs> how are Christians deceived? Let me give you some examples of how Christians are deceived. Because we often think that we've got it right. And that's when we get deceived. Remember that Satan's weapon of deception, easily seen, when he goes to Eve in the garden, how does he get her to eat the apple? He says to her, you will not die if you eat this. She said, but the Lord said that we couldn't eat that. We would die. He's like, you will not die. There's the deception. It's an outward lie. She did die for eating that fruit. I called it an apple. It should be fruit. Whatever the fruit was. That was the deception. Okay? Followed by lies, hiding from God, blame shifting, like, you know, them pointing at each other. It was her fault. It was his fault. Like, they did it. Okay? But it begins with deception. How are Christians deceived? Here's some examples. Christian deceptions. We believe in American ideals, not biblical ideals. We confuse individual freedom for membership in the body of Christ. We confuse democracy against God's desire to be a king. We believe that truth is relative or that actions are justified so long as they are not outwardly harmful. We're deceived when we believe in a prosperity gospel and not the one of Jesus Christ. We're deceived when we expect nothing but good things from life and forget that Jesus taught us the cost of discipleship. We're deceived when we believe that it's our money to give to God and not God's money that he gives to us. We're deceived when we believe that this world is our home, when we tell others about heaven but live for this life, when it would be almost impossible to distinguish our lifestyle from that of our non-Christian neighbors, when we don't even know our non-Christian neighbors, when we strive for every material thing and feel that God is blessing us because we actually have them. We're deceived when we split and argue and divide out of arrogance and pride among churches related to non-essential doctrines. We're deceived when we believe that we've been given a blank check to sin with impunity because we've been saved. We're deceived when we put on Christianity like a badge of pride or a club to which we belong. We're deceived when we ignore those who are starving in the world, those who are sick, those who are dying, those who have no hope, those who are in the most desperate places. We're deceived when we remake God in our own image, when we turn pastors into cult heroes, when we rely on bumper sticker slogans rather than deal with the deeper meaning of God's words, when we champion condemnation over love of the sinner. All of those are deceptions in the way that Satan helps us to pervert Christianity into something that champions his causes. We're not even on the right battlefield at that point. 
We're not even fighting for the right king at that point. So when Paul tells us to put on the belt of truth, what he's really saying is, get it right. Figure out what the truth is and make sure you're on the right team. Make sure what you believe is true. Measure it against God's standard. Otherwise, you're fighting the wrong battle. That's the starting point. To be defensive, we need to put on the belt of truth. Next slide, let's look at the breastplate of righteousness. The metaphor here is that in the Roman army, the breastplate, some of you might consider it maybe a large shield, but it was actually worn. You would wear this breastplate that could cover sometimes all the way from above your knees all the way to just below you know, your, your neckline. It was also known as the heart protector. Clearly, an important piece when you're in the kind of warfare that they were in to protect your heart from being pierced. That was the fastest way you would probably die. A lot of people, when they hear the word righteousness, are assuming that what Paul is saying is, put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, Christians misinterpret this. Maybe they think, put on the breastplate of right living and walk around and club people to death because they don't live the way you do. Put on the breastplate of righteousness by which you stand there and go, dun 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 I'm a Christian, you know, and you puff out your chest like that big prideful mark. That's not it. Righteousness really affirms that God makes us righteous, that we are right because he made us right. And as long as our identity is in him, then we can claim that righteousness. I put up on the screen that wearing the belt of truth is not enough. Just knowing the truth and not doing anything about it is not enough. We actually have to live that truth out and live protecting our hearts. So what's the breastplate of righteousness doing? What's it protecting against? What's Satan's weapon? If the first one was deception, the second one is guilt and condemnation. He's trying to get you off the battlefield. Imagine for a second in the analogy of a warrior. What's the fastest way to get a warrior to stop fighting? Okay, I mean, kill him is one. But if short of killing him, it's just to wound them. I mean, look, you could be all like, ah, as much as you want, but as soon as like, you get wounded, suddenly you're thinking about yourself. You don't have to kill the guy, just like, you know, whack off on a hand or something, you know? And that person is suddenly so inwardly focused, they're not fighting the battle anymore. They've lost their vigor for the fight. Now they're just worried about surviving for a moment, wondering if they're going to make it the next five minutes. And that's Satan's second trick. The reason we put on the breastplate of righteousness and live in righteous living with Jesus as the person that we're identifying with is because we need that protection. We need that shield so that he doesn't wound us in that way. And the way he wounds us was guilt and condemnation. You're not good enough to be a Christian. If people only knew what you did, Jesus will never forgive you for those things. You call yourself a Christian and you live this way? That's the devil's condemnation. We know that in Christ Jesus there is no condemnation. We know that the victory is his and he's claimed us as our own and that's not going to go away. That doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit can't convict us of our sin. I want to be very careful to distinguish those two. Because when the Holy Spirit in holiness comes to us and convicts us of our sin, you'll know it's the Holy Spirit because it leads you back to repentance, to renewal, 
to claiming the inheritance that belongs to you, which is salvation in Jesus. You'll know that it's Satan's attack of condemnation and guilt when the net result is you're knocked out of the battle. All you're worried about is you. I'm so bad, I shouldn't have done this, I couldn't have done any, I'm, I'm so... And not just about you personally and how bad you feel. I mean, you can, you can grieve over your sin, that's okay. But if it doesn't lead to those other things like repentance and renewal and getting back up again, then it's really just meant to keep you down. And that's how you can kind of distinguish between when does the Holy Spirit convict us and say, you said you were going to be righteous. You put on this breastplate of righteousness. Are you living right? You're not. Come back and live right. As opposed to, I got through the armor somehow. Now just lay down because you're not good enough. You're going to die. You're not going to make it. You're no good to these people. They don't need you. You, can't, you shouldn't even be called one of them. You're just not good enough. Do you have a comment on it? That's very important that it is like knowing that Jesus is behind you as well, right? I mean, that he's got you, in other words. And that you're not going to lose that salvation that you have, too. By the way, the, the, the illusion that Paul is making, of course, is a metaphor to the Roman army. But there's also Old Testament references to this same concept. So this would have been familiar to Paul's audience to kind of gird yourself with truth and put on this breastplate of righteousness. It was an analogy that even transcended back to the Old Testament. So number one weapon, deception. Number two, to somehow get through that shield if possible and get to you to take you down and keep you down through your own doubts, guilt, whatever, whatever you can use, keep you out of the battle. Next one, next slide. Paul tells us that we need to take a firm footing. Think again back to his analogy. He's talking about so that we can stand. Roman soldiers used to tie their sandals all the way up their leg. First, to give them firm footing. And second, they would actually have nails protruding through the bottom of the sandals, like modern-day cleats. Historians actually say that Alexander may have invented this early on the Greeks, but they're not sure. They didn't know that he at least sanctioned it. Because early on, as you look at it, the armies that started doing really well were the ones that, no matter how much you attacked them, could actually dig in and stand. And that made a huge difference on the battlefield. Paul is borrowing that same historical knowledge and saying, we need to have firm footing. Really, it's you need to be able to stand in your understanding of the gospel, of what it is, and how to share it. That's kind of what we do here Sunday nights. We tear apart these doctrines, not just for the heck of it, but because I believe that we're going to be out there constantly sharing these things for the rest of our lives. And people are going to put up very difficult objections, sometimes out of a genuine desire to understand it, sometimes because there's a genuine desire to attack what you believe. It does you no good to know the truth, to be able to walk in righteousness and kind of live it if the first time somebody comes at you with it, you fall down. 
the firm footing is knowledge and that confidence in knowing the gospel and being able to articulate it and share it and even rebut the kinds of attacks that you will hear so that you will have a firm defensive posture. Remember, the ultimate battle in our, is in our mind. It's, it's really ultimately saying the ultimate battle is if Jesus is the only way to go to heaven, then knowing that or not knowing that are the stakes in this battle. He's trying to keep non-believers from knowing it. So if he takes you down, that's one less chance that a non-believer were here because you didn't tell him because you were taken down. The other thing is to go after believers themselves and take them down because they don't know enough about the gospel that we believe. And it will fall. Now, let's take a time out here. We're overemphasizing the battle a little bit, so... I'm not meaning to say that if you can't articulate every part of the doctrines of the Trinity or, you know, don't know where predestination comes out in a debate or something, that you don't have salvation. Or that someone will attack you and you say, I don't know, and that means it will be just forfeited. Like, I'll go, okay, thank you, I'll take that back. That's not what I'm saying at all. But here's what I am saying. I have a friend who grew up as a Christian who cannot believe in Jesus anymore because she was visited by the spirit of her dead father. And after having so much angst about her dad her whole life because he wasn't a Christian, never believed in Jesus, she was worried about what happened to this father that she was so close to when he passed away. And sitting in churches, if she took the gospel that we proclaim as true, she believed there was a very good chance that her dad was not in heaven because he didn't believe in Jesus. So you can imagine how excited she was when her father came to her and said, don't worry, I'm in heaven. And it's so great here, and I can't wait for you to get here. Now, we haven't really talked so much about supernatural demon influences because we've been talking about the battle that goes on in our mind. This is the first that I'm venturing into one of these kinds of illusions about what demons do do supernaturally. But... After thinking about this story for the better part of 10 or 15 years that I've been playing around with it over and over, I've got to be convinced that that is exactly what Paul is talking about when he said, you have to stand your ground and know the gospel. Because this girl stopped believing in Jesus, stopped believing that the Christian gospel could be true, because now she had proof, and I put that in quotes, that her dad was in heaven and her dad did not believe in Jesus. So therefore, everything that we believed must be wrong. I can't tell you this with certainty because I won't know till I get to heaven, but I'm pretty convinced that the vision or the spirit that visited her was nothing short of a demon screwing with her mind, taking away the chance of her ever knowing Jesus. Because she didn't know the gospel of truth, of peace, well enough to stand and say, no, I reject that as much as I want to believe it. Now, it's funny because I want to say that was an isolated incident. When I met my wife, one of the things that she told me was a story that happened in her family, and it happened last year, actually, where a mother was also so distraught over her daughter who passed away and was also visited by the spirit of her daughter who came to her in the room and said, don't worry, mom, I'm in heaven. 
if it's what I think it is, and this is really demonic influences trying to get people to miss the gospel completely, seems like this is one right out of their playbook. Seems like they repeat this one. They like this one. Because in my own life, I've heard it twice already. This is getting a little weird. How does that story play with you? Are we confident enough that Christ is the only way that we would stand our ground and, and say, hey, I'm sorry to tell you this. I'm sorry to have to break this to you, but that wasn't your dad. That wasn't your daughter. It can't be because it contradicts the truth. Dig in. Take the stand. Can we do that? I mean, I don't want to do that. That'd be hard. <laughs> that would be the hardest thing to say to somebody like, I know you want to believe that, but it's not true. It's not your father. But that tactic takes the gospel that you think you know, that you think you believe, and really calls it into question, leaves that person out there rejecting it. And now they've rejected their only chance for salvation. So in those cases, looks like that play works. That's probably why they're repeating it. There's enough ambivalence about it. There's enough of a family member wanting to believe that that person is in a good place and everything's going to work out, and now they've got proof. And the devil's smiling, thinking, that's a good one. should use that one more often. Go to the next slide. This is Paul writing to the Galatians, Galatians 1, 6 through 8. And you've got to hear the anger or the frustration or whatever it is with Paul, because he actually calls the Galatians fools at one point through the book of Galatians. He's kind of a little, a little upset with them. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But... Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. My words don't seem so harsh if I were to say that to that girl now that wasn't your father compared to Paul who's actually saying, if we or an angel from heaven were to preach a different gospel, let us be condemned. I don't think he could have said it any stronger. Incidentally, as a side note, I always find this verse especially compelling with the Mormon church, since apparently <laughs> some angel from heaven told him to write a whole different gospel, but never mind that. That's just a detail. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 2. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. In a different context, to a different people, he's saying the same things. Believe it and take the stand. Otherwise, this whole thing you're doing, it's for nothing. If you don't believe in the right gospel and take a stand, it's the gospel by which you were saved. And he says, that's the one I preached to you. Remember what I said to you. That's the right one. Stick to that one. So, what I usually think is some goofy Christian language that comes from Paul turns out to tell us that we have some serious defensive armor that we must put on. Not should, 
not if it's optional if you want to show up for the battle, but if you want to be a Christian, you must put it on. Again, I'm going to step back and say, not because you can't be saved if you don't put it on, but because if you want to do your best to fight in the right battle, then you have to know the truth. And you have to make sure you're on the right battlefield. Otherwise, you're fighting for the wrong team. To avoid the condemnation versus somebody who's trying to go straight for the heart to take you down and make sure that you're basically not counted, that you can't do any more good, that you yourself count yourself out. And finally, that we hold fast. We've got to hold fast to what it is. Otherwise, just knowing those things doesn't make any difference. And when we don't hold fast, this is a rare case, I will admit, that you'll abandon the religion and believe in something different. That's probably not the effect that most happens, but I've already seen it happen a number of times in my life. Incidentally, one commentator says, you notice that most of the stuff you're putting on all has to do with like the front, you know? There's really no much, not much protection for the back of you. And the commentator said that's because in the Roman army, they fought in flanks. So the person behind you had your back. And that really was where the kind of that whole thing comes from. Like the person behind you has your back because they're defending you from the rear. And that kind of argues for Christian community the way that we're supposed to be protecting one another and working with one another and getting each other's back. And also that argues for the Holy Spirit being the one that comes behind you to gently correct you as opposed to the person who's trying to get through straight to the heart. So yes, it's just a metaphor. I'm sure it has weaknesses, not the least of which is probably not understood by most Christians who are walking around asking people if you're wearing the secret underwear or whatever, you know. <laughs> but it does have severe impact when we take it off and when we're subject to deception, condemnation, and an inability to stand when we're attacked. God's knowledge and his, his omniscience is unique to him. So some people wrongly attribute that the devil has that power. He doesn't have that power. He's very limited in his powers. Um, yeah, I don't think, but see that where it, how it comes down to like somewhere between human and God is, is the devil who was a former angel and still has some power. I mean, he's definitely in the spiritual realm. What, what does that give him? Does it give him the, the ability to read our thoughts? I think most commentators I'm reading would say yes, because he knows your fears, he knows your underlying motivations, and he encourages them. He uses them, right? So that seems to imply to me that he has the ability to at least do those things like get into your mind. Now, you could argue you don't need to get into a person's mind. You can just follow them around invisibly and go, I know what that guy's all about. You know, I mean, the same way a psychologist could talk to you for two hours and tell you, okay, here's your problems, A, B, and C, and they'd be like, how did you know that? You know? Okay, so maybe, maybe he doesn't have to have too much supernatural ability beyond the ability to be all over your life and figure out what you're really about and then present that opportunity. I mean, if you're like following some guy around the street who looks at every girl that walks by, like somehow encouraging him to meet some woman at work, it, it, you don't need to read his thoughts, you know? But I probably tend to believe that he can, that he plays on those fears, those emotions, those thoughts, those, those desires, all those things that those are part of what his ability is to understand but I wouldn't give him omniscient ability like all-knowingness or anything like that. Where does that bring us in the end? You know, last week we set up this really crazy scenario where we're like, what if Jesus was not the contingency plan? What if Jesus was not like, oh shoot, my people fell, I gotta go figure out a way to get them. 
What if Jesus was always the plan? What if God from the beginning of time designed the whole thing knowing Satan would fall, knowing man would fall, so that on this earth, letting Satan do his worst, he would figure out those who truly chose him to go to heaven. I posed that to somebody this week, kind of bouncing that idea off and talking about, you know, if you want to hear more about that, get CD number two, because that was kind of the provocative nature of last week's talk. And and his response was kind of interesting. He said, well, if God knows everything, why even go through the experiment? Couldn't you just say, all right, I was going to create 10 billion people from day zero all the way to like 8,000 years later. And using my perfect knowledge, I know that only 1 billion of them were going to accept me. The other 7 billion weren't. So let's just get it on, create that 1 billion, and get on to heaven. And the other 7 billion, they're just automatically showing up in hell. And I started wrestling with that because it seemed like an issue. Like, if he really knows, why even put us through the experiment, right? But I think part of it is, you're right, there is a relationship going on. I think part of it is, I get the sense that those seven billion would have said to God, how do you know that we wouldn't have accepted you? I mean, we would have. You just didn't even give us the chance. I mean, the fact that you didn't even give us the chance is just so wrong. I mean, we just showed up here. And it's almost like I think he said, all right, fine, 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 let's do it. Let's just reset it and just do it. That way you guys will see that I was right. And then when you end up there, at least you can't say to me, how do you know? I would have, I would have, I should have, I could have. And you like, you would see that even when I gave you the chance, you still did what I told you were going to do anyways. But now you can be convicted about it because you chose on your own. Which really gives us back to Peter's comment about that's why the justice seems delayed. Because he's letting it all play out. So that everyone would have a chance. And those who accept him will. And those who don't won't have any excuse other than I gave you a life to see what you would do with it and you chose the other one. You didn't choose me. Yeah. Like it works the other way too because the more that we experience with God, the more that we love Him, and the more that like we see how He works in our life, and the more like faith. And to rob us of that wouldn't be fair either. Yeah, and you and Hannah are on the same wavelength because I'm making it like a one-dimensional choice or two-dimensional, like as an on-off switch, like God or hell, like salvation or just damnation. And it really is a multifaceted relationship that goes beyond that. But I think last week we discovered that because in heaven we're going to have more restricted free will, there won't be any sorrow, suffering, sin, that that wasn't a good laboratory for us to work out our free will. We had to kind of do it in a place where everything goes to figure out where it was going to work out. So then when we got to heaven, you know, there was like we knew we had the chance to screw it all up and we got through somehow. So I don't want to make it a focus just on salvation, but that kind of is the battle we're talking about. I mean, yes, once you have salvation, we have a whole relationship with Christ that we should be nurturing so that when we get to heaven, we're not like a baby. Not like the thief on the cross who like one minute gets to know him and the next minute has to know who he really is. We've like walked with him our life and we have a much more qualitative relationship than just showing up and saying, I got in. There's more to it. But remember the battle we're talking about 
is about salvation because the devil's trying to take down people and that's all he cares about is are you in or out? I'm going to try to keep you out. But I think sometimes it's a lie that he uses for Christians too. Like, you're already in it, don't worry about it. Yeah. And like, you don't deepen your faith or... Yeah, and that's one of the deceptions I said like on here. Like, when we, uh, when we think that we're allowed to sin with impunity yeah. just because we're in or we're just believing in a different deception because then when he comes, you're not going to be able to stand your ground or you're fighting the wrong fight. But it really is, yeah, you're kind of weak. I mean, like I said, if that girl knew the gospel confidently, she herself would be saying, there's something wrong with me being visited by my dad saying this. I, at least she would be very, very distressed about it, more than just, oh, it's okay, I'm writing it off. No, no, it's totally not true because my dad told me it's not true. You're basing a lot of your, you know, your eternal destiny on that one thing, but it's understandable. I mean, she loved her dad a lot. All right, let me pray. Do you want to do some more songs? All right, let me pray. Lord, tonight there were some weighty words that we had to wrestle through. This topic has been something that we've had to kind of chew on week after week. But Lord, I'm, I'm excited because in the midst of a topic that has a tendency to focus on dark things, Lord, I'm learning more about you in, in a very positive light. I'm learning to praise you for things that are just mind-boggling. But Lord, you're revealing them to us just in our study and in trying to understand Satan, we're lending up just like you've always planned, glorifying you even more. Lord, I pray that we would have the courage to stand firm. And we need to work at it. Not only to recognize truth and avoid the inevitable kind of condemnation that sometimes gets through. But Lord, I feel like this knowledge would be in vain if we didn't use it for purposes of spreading your gospel to others to help them stand and using it in our own life to strengthen one another. Just like the analogy, Lord, of us having each other's back, we need to stand together and stand straight, firm, feet planted on the ground so that you will be our protector, Lord. Guard our flanks as well. And not let us fall to the enemy's attacks, Lord. I thank you for each person who's here tonight and... I pray that you be with us tonight in our fellowship and our time together and that next week you prepare us as we begin to look at the spiritual weapons that we have in our armor. Pray these things in your name. Amen.